all of this competition and tension does just suggest we're in a bit of an arms race. You know, the rules have gone out the window. Everyone's trying to capture the economic activity they can, and they're willing to do whatever it takes to do that. The open, rules-based trading system is under pressure. As countries increasingly seek to leverage economic interdependence for geopolitical gain, what does it mean for the future of globalization? Will Russia's war in Ukraine mark a watershed moment? And with multilateral trade governance at its weakest in decades, how can the system adapt to these challenges and to the impact of climate change? These are some of the issues explored by the AIG Global Trade Series 2022, a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. The series moderator is Rem Kortovec of the Klingendal Institute. Hello and welcome to the AIG Global Trade Series 2022, a series of podcast conversations with leading thinkers on the future of international trade. My name is Rem Kortovec. I'm a senior research fellow at the Klingendal Institute in the Netherlands, and today we will talk about what role can middle powers play in moving global trade forward. Now, as you'll know, in earlier podcast conversations, we have touched upon the notion that the global trade environment is facing tremendous pressures. Supply chains are being reordered, decoupling is back on the agenda, national security concerns are driving quasi-protectionist policies. Some are even talking about the risk of fragmentation of the global trading system into a series of regulatory blocks. Usually, the dominant actors in those blocks are thought to be the United States, China, possibly the European Union. But if that's the case, and that's the future we're heading towards, where does that leave important trading powers like Britain and South Korea? Countries that pursue independent trade policies, which have clout, but are invariably affected by these larger markets. What role for these middle powers in salvaging globalization as we know it? And how are they anticipating these trends? Now, there are, of course, major differences between South Korea and the UK, but also a number of things are quite similar. And that's why this conversation, I believe, is quite interesting. South Korea and Britain are somewhat comparable in size. Both roughly account for 2% of global GDP. Trade is an important element for both their economies. Percentage of GDP is 80% for Korea. It's a little bit lower for the UK. Both countries are in the G20. Korea has 51 million citizens, the UK 67. Both, importantly, are located just next to their main markets, China for South Korea, the European Union for Britain. Also, both have a very dynamic trade policy. South Korea recently joined RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership that also includes Japan and China, and is keen to join the CPTPP, the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. The UK, of course, is still charting its post-Brexit trade course, but has, amongst other things, also applied to join CPTPP. Now, to take a closer look at these dynamics, I'm joined by two terrific thinkers in the field. First of all, I'm very pleased to welcome Teho Bark from Seoul. Dr. Bark is president of the Global Commerce Institute of Lee & Co., a leading global law firm in Korea. He is vice president of the Seoul Forum for International Affairs and professor emeritus at Seoul National University 
and chairman of the Korean Committee of the Trilateral Commission. He served as Minister for Trade of the Korean government from 2011 to 2013 and is author of several books on international trade and the Korean economy. He knows Korea's trade policy and its outlook like no other. Secondly, I'm very pleased to be joined by Sam Lowe. Sam is the Director for Trade at Flint Global, where he advises on UK and EU trade policy with a particular focus on regulatory barriers, customs, trade in services, and Brexit. I also happen to know he has a thing for rules of origin. Sam used to be a senior research fellow at the Centre for European Reform and has been a member of the UK government's strategic trade advisory group, is a very regular commentator on trade and Brexit matters. Now, with those introductions out of the way, let's get started. Professor Bark, can I turn to you first? What are the main challenges and opportunities that Korea faces in this emerging trade environment? And how would you best describe Korea's trade policy? Well, uh, first of all, uh, Korea, which is uh, heavily dependent on international trade, investment, and overseas production, we are closely monitoring what's going on in world trade environment. My uh, Korea's uh, biggest concern is this. U.S. efforts these days uh, to uh, uh, have some uh, supply chain resilience and uh, some kind of decoupling possibilities between, Korea, between China and the United States. We are wondering whether U.S. and also along with the EU try to uh, uh, reinvigorate the, the global trade governance or they are simply pursuing some so-called anti-China measures because mm -hmm. we don't see any kind of consistency in the policy direction of the United States uh, regarding to the uh, rules of uh, law and uh, you know the principle of open, open trade, non-discrimination, because U.S. is doing the similar thing that uh, China used to do. In other words, uh, pouring uh, subsidies into some, some advanced technology sectors. China did that, uh, which created a lot of distortion in overcapacity problems and also high-tech uh, industries. And U.S. Is, is doing the same thing on semiconductors. They are giving huge subsidies. And also, uh, they are thinking about implementing so-called discriminatory policies toward electric vehicle using battery kind of uh, industries where if you use batteries made in uh, China or use some materials coming from China in making batteries, you will not get any incentives by the U.S. government. In any case, these are the things, you know, we are confused whether U.S. is doing something for the global governance, global trade governance in the future, mm. or simply they are doing anti-China uh, policy measures and ask allies like Korea to join their approach. This is our, you know, our concern. So some, sometimes the uh, general public uh, understand the situation is you, know, you have to choose China or over United States or vice versa. So we are a little bit confused and concerned. And how does that translate into, into Korea's approach to global trade policy? Is it reactive in that sense to what the U.S. is doing or is there a more proactive element to it? Well, actually, at the moment, U.S. policy direction in macro sense, in other words, in the Pacific economic framework and supply chain resilience kind of policies are not clearly spelled out yet. So we are monitoring, yeah, we are all kind of proactive in accepting uh, their views, 
But uh, at the same time, we cannot cut our relationship with China because our trade with China is big. You know, our export, a uh, quarter of our total export is going to China. We are heavily dependent on key materials, parts, you know, and, and a lot of uh, important things uh, coming from China. So we cannot uh, simply, you know, sever our relationship uh, between uh, Korea and, and China in terms of trade. So we are closely watching this. And also at the same time, we are trying to diversify our trade and investment relations as much as possible. So we are, our, our companies are looking at Europe for producing batteries for electric vehicles and, and semiconductors in the United States. And also lots of Korean firms who used to be operating in China are moving to Southeast Asian countries like Vietnam. Of course, you know, not, not only because of U.S.-China trade disputes, but also China's uh, economic environment is getting worse. In other words, their income, their, their GDP is rising rapidly compared to those in uh, Vietnam or Indonesia. So naturally, they are moving to that direction. In other words, uh, Korean companies are diversifying their trade and uh, overseas production and also investment. Uh, we are making a lot of investment in Europe and also United States. So that's what the current situation Korea is facing. Let's pick up on, on some of those issues after I bring in, in Sam. Sam, how should we understand Britain's post-Brexit trade policy? And I know this is a big question, but how, how do you see its relation to, say, the big three trading powerhouses develop from a, from a British vantage point? I think it's fair to say that the UK's trade policy post-Brexit is in a state of, a continual state of flux. And in a sense, we're engaging in a, in a kind of experiment. It, we're asking ourselves, is it possible to break free from the tyranny of geography? And, and I think there are some lessons here for, we've been discussing South Korea and its relationship with China, and that's largely driven by proximity, size, existing relationships. And the UK, of course, has taken a decision to de-integrate, disintegrate itself from the European market to a degree. Can we call it decoupling? Decoupling to a degree, uh, to erect new barriers to trade with the European Union in the form of new regulatory barriers, new customs barriers, new rules of origin obligations, as you've mentioned, I something I'm always slightly fascinated by, but in the hope that the control it takes back, the sovereignty, or however you want to frame it, can be used to facilitate and open up new relationships with other third countries. And in a sense, the UK can benefit from diversification, from moving its focus away from its near partner, the EU, and looking elsewhere. And the hope is that over time, that will lead to aggregate benefits, that that will actually justify the decisions taken in relation to the European Union, which weren't entirely driven by the economics at all, but played a part in it. And of course, this means that the UK is now in a bit of a tricky position vis-a-vis -vis the three power blocks, because the European Union, we've already taken the decision to have a fairly antagonistic relationship with, at least in the short to medium term. Although I should say that the economic relationship has held up to a degree, perhaps more than people thought it would. And then the US is a bit of a problem. And I, th I think Dr. Bark has mentioned this, in that it's not always clear what the US's intention is when it comes to the global traded environment. And my view is that the US is one of the few countries on earth that could probably go 
full autarky, by which I mean go entirely self-sufficient and still survive and still get by, as in it has natural resources, it has energy, it has food. Trade just isn't that important to its economy. So if you, you mentioned earlier in terms of trade as a percentage of GDP, the US is right at the bottom of that chart. I think if you look at World Bank figures from 2020, the only countries less reliant on international trade in terms of imports and exports as a percentage of GDP was Cuba and Sudan. So where's the incentive for the US to actually underwrite the entire world trading system, which is what countries like the UK, and I'm not going to speak for South Korea, but other countries do as well to a degree, in that we want them to say, these are the rules, we will enforce them, and the benefits of abiding by the rules is you get access to the US market, which is still the biggest, richest market on earth. But what if it doesn't want to play by those rules? And I think that lingering concern, especially when you look forward to the the next election cycle and maybe the return of a certain President Trump lingers in the back of the US head. And then China's a problem as well for the UK, because actually from a security perspective, we do fall under the US umbrella. And whilst we might want to deepen ties with China, US concerns make that difficult, but also recent Chinese action on Hong Kong, for example, on COVID has turned much of the British public and politicians against China. So, so it's going to be difficult to deepen those relationships there. I would say we're in a bit of a quandary. It's, it's, we've made some positive steps since leaving the European Union. We have done trading agreement with New Zealand, with Australia. We have committed ourselves, other than the relationship with the European Union, to liberalisation. We talk a really good game. We want to join CPTPP. We're saying the right things, but in terms of delivery, I think we're looking around and starting to find out that actually, you know, there's a big wide world out there and it's sometimes difficult to go alone. That's very interesting. I'm, I'd be keen also to get Tejo's reflections on British trade policy and, and vice versa, because indeed, I mean, the UK is embarking on this big experiment, which I think raises lessons for all of us. But I want to continue on one point you mentioned, which is the CPTPP, because it seems that the CPTPP is like the new thing in town that at least South Korea and both the United Kingdom want to join. Is it because CPTPP is potentially this bridge that can facilitate trade between these centrifugal forces and, and these blocks that we've described? Or is it because it's just the second best option in town because multilateralism at the WTO level doesn't seem to be really going as quickly as many would like. I mean, how to understand, in other words, and let's start with Taeho first, the, the Korea's approach to the CPTPP. Korea actually was offered as an initial participant in TPP, but we missed the opportunity in 2013 because of the government transition and many other reasons. But if you look at the TPP planned by uh, uh, initiative by United States is to uh, uh, act against China, not against, but we want to encourage China to upgrade their market opening and upgrade their rules you know, on important issues. So I thought the TPP was a good idea to give pressure to China, because at that moment, some scholars in the United States, like Peter Petrie at Brandeis University, he calculated all the benefits and costs, all kinds of things. If TPP, including the United States, is working, the worst victim will be China. But we can invite China into TPP if they are you know, willing to open up and uh, enhance their system to uh, 
accept that this kind of high standard rules. But uh, you know, certainly Trump uh, you know, withdraw uh, from uh, uh, TPP and then uh, CPTPP here now. And in the case of Korea, uh, you know, Korea is a small country. We have uh, like uh, 18 FTAs with uh, more than 55 you know, individual countries. The reason is this, small country, we want to expand our export market as much as possible by signing the FTAs. But in the case of CPTPP, we don't need to expand our export market because we already have uh, bilateral FTAs with the existing member, except Japan and Mexico. So this time, Korea's intention is to increase the flexibility of our business companies in terms of their investment, their supplying, you know, their parts and, you know, making things, you know, where, where, wherever within the CPP uh, nations, they can, they use the free trade kind of system. That's why uh, Korea is willing to uh, join the CPTPP. We did not actually submit our application, formal application yet. The new government will do that soon, but uh, this is what, you know, is all about CPTPP. But uh, interestingly, there are some opposition in Korea, in the, you know, the civil uh, groups or opposition party. By joining the CPTPP, it means that we have an FTA with Japan. And uh, Korea-Japan relationship still you know, very sour, and we have to do something. So Korean government is facing some, some difficulties even submitting the uh, application to join the CPTPP so far. And, and just on this, do, do you think that it would be an insurmountable obstacle or could actually the opportunity that CPTPP is a group of countries, it's not just an FTA with Japan, it's of course more than that, could that actually assuage some of those fears? In fact, a lot of uh, existing members of CPTPP welcome Korea's joining to CPTPP because Korea is not a small country in terms of trade. So it can actually enhance the size of the CPTPP and you know, it's a lot better uh, by accepting uh, Korea. So I think uh, sooner or later, uh, considering the political situation in Korea, we are facing lots of domestic you know, political issues with the new government that comes in. And if things are a little bit clearer, then I think uh, the last step we have before we submit is our application. We have to report to the National Assembly, but not National Assembly is dominated by the opposition party by a huge margin. So if they reject, you know, the report, uh, they, they don't have any rejection or accept of the report. They just simply hear the report of the public hearing of, on CPTPP. Then we can, government can take a next step, which means that uh, we are formally submitting our application to the uh, CPTPP and then start our negotiation with the individual countries. This is remaining steps. Uh, and sooner or later, we'll, we'll, we'll move in that direction. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we're going to continue our conversation on the role that middle powers can play in moving global trade forward. As the global economy emerges from the pandemic and intensifying regulatory competition is further straining the open trading system, conversations about international trade and its contribution to global prosperity have never been more important. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2022. This series is brought to you by AIG and its partners, the Aspen Institute, Germany, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, 
the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown University Law Center, the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France, the Italian Institute for International Political Studies, the Jacques Delors Institute, France, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, and the St. Gallen Endowment for Prosperity Through Trade. We're back from our break, and we're going to continue our conversation on the role that middle powers can play in moving global trade forward with Dr. Teho Bark and Sam Lowe. And, and, and half a world away, the UK is, as you mentioned, Sam, embarking on this experiment to see how it can escape the, um, I think you call it the tyranny of geography. And see, its application to CPTPP is, is oftentimes quoted in that light. This is also, at least from my personal perspective, where I really think that there's a lot of interest to see how the UK would fare and, and what kind of benefits it would accrue if it joined the CPTPP. What's your, what's your take on that? Well, I think it's important to understand that similar to South Korea again, and so, so you've definitely done, done a good thing in bringing us both together because I'm listening to Dr. Bark and hearing lots of familiar sort of discussions. Um, for the UK, CPTPP isn't an economic project in that we already have bilateral agreements or are about to bring into force bilateral agreements with all of the membership except Malaysia and Brunei. So, so we already have the bilateral with Japan. And also, if you're talking about the economic benefits of CPTPP as it exists, that's largely driven by Japan's membership, just in terms of economic size. Prior to when it was TPP, of course, that was the US. It was the US that was the real price. But now it's Japan. And we already have a deep bilateral trade agreement with Japan that we sort of rolled over and tweaked slightly after we left the European Union. So it's not about the economics, but it is about the politics. And there's a domestic side to this and an international dimension. Domestically, the UK wants to join CPTPP to demonstrate to the British people that upon leaving the European Union, we have been able to do things differently and negotiate agreements that we wouldn't have been able to negotiate whilst we were part of the European Union, and therefore wasn't Brexit a good idea. So there's that dimension. But internationally, and I think this dimension is more important, there is a need for the UK to demonstrate that it is still committed to rules-based trade. Because following its exit from the European Union, and the UK would always contest this, lots of countries looked at the UK at the time and said, oh, that's quite Trumpian. You're in, you, you, you've done it. You, Trump was in power at the time for most of it, and, 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 and you're in that basket. And actually, the UK, by joining CPTPP, can sort of close a door on that narrative and say, no, look, we're very happy to be engaged in a, a component member of a rules-based group, perhaps not the European Union, but in this case, CPTPP. So it's quite important for that. And the UK's my view is the UK will exceed CPTPP. It's going to take a bit longer than maybe the UK would hope for. And that's largely because we haven't really mentioned this. China has applied to join CPTPP. And this actually makes everyone else's accession process more difficult. Because whereas before the UK thought, we can apply to join CPTPP, we're largely fully compliant with the rules contained within it. However, there are a few things we do differently that we would like to be accounted for, and we don't want to change those things. Whereas before the UK might have thought we'll get some flexibility, 
Now, if you talk to existing CPTPP members, they say no flexibility is on offer, and it can't be, because if we were to give the UK some flexibility, China might ask for the same. And the membership are in a difficult situation with China because they can't reject outright because you don't want to offend China. So the only way to keep China out is to say, well, you're non-compliant. If they're showing flexibility to everyone else trying to join, then China will rightfully say, well, why can't you show it to us as well? So I think that will slow down the UK's application, but it will happen. And then, yes, the, what are the economic benefits? Uh, it's been mentioned by Dr. Mark already. It's around the accumulation, it's rules of origin provisions and the like. Although, ironically, were China to join, the economic benefits would be much bigger. Yep. So, so, so there's an interesting dimension there. There's also the dimension of what if the US decided to rejoin in future? Would being a part of the CPTPP put you in a better negotiating position with the US than trying to deal with that bilaterally? Maybe. So there's lots of future sort of tangents we can go on as well. Yeah. And just as a footnote, not just China has applied, but uh, Taiwan as well, which just complicates the geopolitics of the CPTPP tremendously. And of course, there's always this discussion in US trade circles. Well, if only Trump hadn't withdrawn, if only it had been part of the TPP, things might have been different. And so that that idea hasn't hasn't entirely died either. So the CPTPP as such is is really interesting. What I take from both of your answers is that it's not necessarily the economics that are driving this. It's the diversification, but it's also very much the the, the politics, which have a very important domestic element. I, I think that's really quite interesting and, and valuable for both of you to, to point out. It leads me to another question, which is how do Britain and South Korea then see their their role in terms of moving that trade agenda forward, which kind of gets us to the, the title of this session. Namely, is the trade policy primarily informed by these domestic considerations? Or is there also an enlightened multilateralism at play in the sense that, okay, we have these three big blocks that are sometimes at loggerheads, sometimes in a somewhat dysfunctional relationship, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Maybe it's up to countries that have a real stake in globalization, like the UK, like South Korea, to move the conversation forward. Or am I viewing this too too benevolently? I think there is a role for the for the UK in this. And you can look at other countries who have done this quite successfully. If you think about New Zealand in terms of size of GDP relevant to the international economy, you know, I, I work with New Zealanders, I love New Zealanders, but, but you know, it's, it's irrelevant as a country in terms of global economy. But in the trade discussions, it's not irrelevant at all. It takes quite prominent positions in lots of discussions. You could even point to the CPTPP itself being the result of a New Zealand idea, you know, with some others coming together, starting small and building outwards. So, so New Zealand has been incredibly effective. And then you sort of ask, well, why has it decided to take this role? And it's because it's absolutely essential to its economy. New Zealand cannot sustain the standards of living it's been accustomed to without free trade. It has to sell internationally in order to develop those gains. And sort of accepting that, it said, well, we need to work really, really hard to integrate ourselves and to find bits of the discussion where we can take a leadership role. And, you know, it's now sort of when we're discussing uh, beforehand, you mentioned the Digital Economic Partnership Agreement, another sort of idea that New Zealand has pulled together. And I think the UK would perhaps would really like to do this. And of course, it, it sees itself as a bit more important than New Zealand even. So it would like to have an even bigger 
role in the discussion. And I think there are areas where that is possible. I think on financial services, the UK in the regulatory space is already very important in the international discussions. And there is a trade dimension to that as well. We're currently negotiating a mutual recognition agreement with Switzerland that if the ambition were realized to the extent it could be, would probably be the deepest, most integrated type of agreement you would see. You know, it would build on sort of equivalent type provisions you see in the EU and elsewhere, but integrate it into a formal system, potentially. On digital trade, the UK and its agreements with with New Zealand, with Australia, has embraced really advanced provisions. I would argue a bit, unfortunately, we're not, we've signed up to lots of things we don't fully understand just yet, but we will. And I think we could, once we collect ourselves and think about it a bit more, play a very constructive role internationally there. I think the problem we have is that we are going to have to pick specific areas. We can't just move and expect the whole world to follow, which is what the US, China, EU does, and then they argue amongst each other. That's no longer possible. What you have to do is build coalitions. You have to find the countries that agree with you on specific issues, bring them together and build. As again, New Zealand has been very successful. I'd also mention, though, the agreement on climate change that they're pulling together, the acts. You know, so there are models out there that I think we could embrace and we should embrace, and I think we will embrace them. We're still just working our way towards that, I would say. And that's understandable. I mean, we, we made a very big decision recently that's having lots of impacts. We've had COVID in the meantime. We've now got the war in Ukraine. There's lots of distractions, but I do think we'll get there. That's really interesting. Professor Bark, how, how does this resonate in a South Korean context? If you look at the Korean economic development history, we developed successfully because of trade, because we are totally poor country without any natural resources. We manufacture things and sell to the world. So multilateral, very strong, free multilateral trading system is the best system we are looking for. But uh, as you know, uh, WTO in a way failed to push China to abide by the rules within the WTO. We actually expected China will change and accommodate everything within the WTO system, but it turns out that you know China didn't do it and the United States cannot handle within the WTO system, which is uh, based on so-called consensus, decision-making mechanism. We cannot do anything about that so that the, you know, the you know, dispute settlement system is not functioning all kinds of things. So we are looking for uh, plurilateralism or regionalism or even CPTPP, not because we, we like those, but because, as Sam mentioned, as the second best or even third best options available. So we must do something. We means uh, middle power uh, nations like Korea, Britain, and also maybe Canada or Australia get together and do something. But, you know, as, as Sam says, we cannot do everything. We have to select some issues, digital trade, even infrastructure development or subsidy issues. You know, there are many important issues where like-minded middle power countries can provide some kind of agreement or principles so that, uh, you know, many other people, many other countries don't look this as uh, this is agenda because you have great interest in this. Maybe we are, we are interested in this, but it's not based on our own self-interest. It's based on future values and uh, you know, the rules of free trade. If you can succeed in forming that kind of groups and then try to provide some agenda, then maybe we can do some intermediary roles 
or discussion facilitating roles uh, among other you know, among nations. If you remember, after Tokyo round, we couldn't finish anything. So that's why we make you know, so-called groups, code we call. This is not, nothing but the trilateral trade agreement. Later, many people criticized, you are undermining the multilateral trading system. But what's the multilateral trading system right now? It's not functioning because of that rigid decision-making mechanism. So I think at least like-minded middle power countries can do something as a earnest broker between big nations and developing countries. And we can persuade them both for the future uh, rules-based trade governance. This is our role to play. And uh, UK and Korea should, should get together and then make it form some kind of coalition. At the WTO, we have an informal group called Friends of System. They don't reveal them now, exact membership. But these are the things, these countries are trying to do that kind of thing. But realistically, it's not easy to you know, accomplish something at the moment. I mean, that's really fascinating. But one of the particular sectors I was thinking about is something that you mentioned at the beginning, uh, Teho, which is semiconductors. Because now between the EU and the US, you have the Trade and Technology Council, there are CHIPS Acts on both sides. There is a, an intense, but not yet, I would say, entirely productive conversation about real coordination on European and US semiconductor cooperation. But of course, South Korea plays a critical role in global semiconductor value chains. Is this an area where you could imagine South Korea to also play a proactive role towards, say, the big, the big dogs, the EU and the US, in terms of getting that supply chain to be more resilient or to deal with some of the concerns in US and European policy circles that I'm sure are also there in the South Korean context? I, I don't know whether you've heard about the uh, Chip 4 Alliance, we call Fab 4 Alliance. US Fab is four alliance. Fo- forming like- <laughs> their kind of uh, group. And in Korea, this is one of the hot issues right now. And China already indirectly show its uh, negative you know, impression that uh, you know, Korea should not join the, you know, this uh, kind of alliance, which is uh, discriminating against China. And, and, and just for our listeners and for myself, what does the Fab Four Alliance do? It's kind of a supply chain uh, group. They are forming supply chain group for semiconductors. Actually, U.S. intention is they ask these alliance countries not to export uh, certain technology items uh, which are related to a semiconductor to China. And uh, even uh, Korean companies, uh, Korea want to do some proactive role in this kind of discussion. What I'm saying is here, uh, U.S. is putting a lot of money in semiconductor uh, industry. So if Korean companies invest in the United States, uh, building semiconductor producing companies in the United States, like SK and uh, Samsung, are are actually, if if their companies accept the U.S. government incentives, then government, the U.S. government has a, a rule called the uh, guardrail rule saying that those companies who received incentives from the United States cannot make any investment in semiconductor-related you know, area. In, but the, both Samsung and SK has a semiconductor companies in, in, in China. It's al- already 10 years old. They have to you know, modernize their equipment by purchasing something from Netherlands. 
but this is regarded as extra investment into China. So that's, that's what uh, we are saying. We should be more proactive in persuading United States. We can, you know, you can understand uh, their plan, but uh, you cannot limit our activities too much so that the, our normal business in China should be continued. And uh, I don't know what will happen in the end, but these are the things we can actually discuss with the United States by accepting their intention. But we have to also say our situation is also difficult in, in China. That's a very clear example also about the pressures that a, a large but still smaller trading power like Korea faces from, say, one of the big, the big blocks. Sam, in the, in the British context, and I know you've been writing about this previously, the UK is part of its effort to give a boost to innovation, but also to reduce some strategic dependencies, has this EV strategy or batteries and, and a battery strategy. At the same time, the EU has that as well. The US has its own EV strategy. How do you see similar pressures, given that you have the big blocks pursuing their own industrial policies and then the UK trying to do that as well? And how does it avoid being left out? I mean, yeah, it's, 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 so the UK is in, in quite a challenging position here because it's investing quite heavily in developing sort of EV capacity and also the battery supply chain that sort of underpins it. But the problem it has is that the European Union is investing more. And also there are some structural factors as a result of Brexit that make the UK slightly less appealing when it comes to a location for some manufacturing, a bit of the supply chain that is integrated into Europe-wide supply chains. Because bringing stuff in and out of Britain in the European context is more difficult than moving things between France and Germany. So, so there are some structural disadvantages there. However, one of the interesting things, and I'm going to talk about rules of origin briefly, if that's okay, is that if you look at the UK-EU trade and cooperation agreement and you look at the provisions that relate specifically to electric vehicles and whether electric vehicles can qualify for tariff-free trade or not, there are some quite intriguing, there's some quite intriguing text there. So by 2027, for an electric vehicle to qualify for tariff-free trade between the UK and the European Union, the battery has to have been created either in the UK or the EU. And this is quite fascinating because actually this doesn't discriminate against the UK. The UK is part of this discussion. It's actually been included in a Europe-wide sort of discussion in the, and is part of the Europe-wide industrial policy. Who it does discriminate against is countries like South Korea, like Japan, like the US, like Norway, for example. The Norwegians are furious about this. And the reason I'm sort of raising that is because we've talked about briefly at the beginning about new US subsidies that effectively discriminate against the rest of the world but leave Canada and Mexico I think off you know in that if you if you want this EV subsidy you have to, everything has to be purchased locally and the EU is furious about this and saying well you know this doesn't sound very WTO compliant and whilst the legal justification might be different the EU is doing exactly the same sort of thing here right it's, it's trying to localize the battery supply chain via a tool that is not necessarily designed to do that in this case rules of origin of the trade and cooperation agreement in the US's case via its its EV subsidies 
And all of this competition and tension does just suggest we're, we're in a bit of an arms race. You know, the rules have gone out the window. Everyone's trying to capture the economic activity they can, and they're willing to do whatever it takes to do that, whether it's spending lots of money, whether it's discriminating against their friends and partners, whether it's sort of repurposing trade provisions to do something they were never really designed to do. The EU's up to it. The US is up to it. The UK sort of looking around is probably going to lose out slightly. Thankfully, it's still sort of integrated in the European discussion on this. So it's not completely missing out as Norway is, which is another country that could be part of this discussion. But, you know, it's not it's not a great place to be for a country like the UK, which is instinctively one that says, well, just let the free market sort it out. You know, we have some semiconductors. We don't really have a strategy for anything normally. We just usually go, oh, we'll just see what happens. We've got some semiconductors. We've got ARM. We do some some, some cool things, but we don't really plan it. But, but we're in a world where unless you plan, <laughs> you're probably going to miss out. Well, and also because um, it suggests, as you say, that the rules have gone out of the window or phrased differently, the, the big blocks simply take decisions. If they go left everyone in their their associated system is also forced to go left if they go right the reverse happens and i guess that that raises this point whether the future of globalization as we know it is more in the hands of the middle powers rather than of the big the big trading blocks i mean is there some validity to that to that hypothesis i wonder if you know going back to sort of a point i raised earlier the middle powers need the rules-based world trading system to survive, to endure. But we're never going to be able to sort of drive it forward. But I think what we can do during a time where the big powers are distracted, where, where they're going off in their own directions, where they're conflicting with each other, is keep it on life support. We can ensure that the world trading system, the rules-based system, endures by sort of working together to keep you know, the discussions going, keep moving some agendas forward, spotting opportunities to progress the discussion, to involve the US, the EU, China in specific areas, and hope that at some point the various administrations in, in sort of the three big power blocks return to the table and say, actually, we value this and let's do something more concrete and, uh, and more substantial. And, and Teho in, in East Asia is tremendously dynamic in terms of trade, trade agreements, trade policy, industrial policy, but also lots of, lots of tensions, both on the economic side as well as on the geopolitics. Where does that place, say, some of the, the middle powers in East Asia? Well, actually, we discussed a long time about the situation of the country or government. But look at the, uh, the positions of global companies. How do they react to this kind of situation? And obviously, we no longer talk about efficiency or cheapest you know, way of producing something. We, we forget about economics. We are talking about a lot more difficult situation where the cost of doing business is much higher than before. And uh, for example, one uh, global company, Korean global company, I don't want to mention the, the name of the company. The CEO, actually, he's, he's, a, he's a family uh, kind of business CEO. He said that we are now thinking about taking vertical integration of their global activities. That doesn't mean that they want to own everything you know, uh, under, under his umbrella, but they want to control every step of production or the marketing, you know, things like that. Otherwise, uh, you cannot 
guarantee your, your, your businesses because, you know, decoupling and you know, supply chain resilience there over there, the rules of origin is different. Apparently, you know, th that's why Korean companies, uh, Samsung and SK and LG are investing not only in the United States, but also in Europe because of this, this kind of things, you know, they want to diversify their relationship, especially, uh, United States is implementing very, uh, tough, you know, so-called investment screening system under the CFUs or whatever, even though we pass that, we, we invest something in the United States for some other, you know, M&A activities by Korean companies merging uh, or acquiring U.S. companies, which is very highly higher uh, research firms. Maybe U.S. will decline this kind of M&A, even though we have a huge investment because this company has a huge business in, in China. Korean firms know this, so they want to diversify even their technology cooperation and, uh, you know, lots of other activities with, uh, we used to focus on China as a market and United States as a kind of source of technology or whatever uh, we want to have. Now, Korean firms are diversifying their relationship into Europe, into ASEAN, you know. In a way, uh, Korean, uh, uh, East Asian uh, government rather than East Asian governments. But the East Asian companies are busy doing diversification into many different regions. Of course, U.S. is important, but some other regions like the EU and maybe with a collaboration with the U.K., maybe we can do something in Europe. Uh, this is what uh, you know, our situation is, is facing right now. That's fa fascinating. I have a final question for both of you, which is, this is very difficult. I'm going to ask you to look into your crystal ball and say 10 years from now, Will decoupling have gone so much forward? Will decoupling have developed so much that middle powers have had to choose the markets in which to be active? Or will we, in 10 years' time, be in a better place in terms of where global supply chains sort of still facilitate interdependence across the continents? I think in 10 years' time, if you just looked at the trade flows, you would still see that there was a lot of trade between, for example, China and the UK, China and the US, China and everyone want, everyone else in terms of sheer values. I think when you look at the composition, you might find that it is slightly different. We, we're having a push towards a greater focus on the restriction of what I'd refer to as sort of dual-use type products or products that are politically sensitive or certain types of technology that could be viewed to you know, be critical to the advancements of certain countries and certain ways of life and could be used against you in different formats. I think I think those restrictions are here to stay. So so will we continue to trade sort of, you know, irons and ironing boards and and, and those sorts of things with China? Yeah, I don't I don't see there being a big problem there. But in terms of equipment used to design semiconductors, in terms of sort of new technology around artificial intelligence in terms of drone technology, for example, I do think those restrictions are here to stay. And at some point, you will probably see that in the composition of trade, even if from a values perspective, we all still continue to look quite integrated. And that would mean from a British context, more a focus on on the US and the European markets. Yeah, I think in terms of in terms of the UK's relationship with the European Union will just go in peaks and troughs, you know, it'll get better, it will get worse, we'll still remain quite deeply integrated. I don't think we're going to succeed in our objective of breaking free from the tyranny of geography. I still think we'll be a European country. I do think the relationship with the US will have to deepen. 
to an extent, and that will be in 10 years time. If we have a long enough time horizon, that will happen. We'll have to see how that operates in the shorter term. I do think that we will have deeper relationships with countries elsewhere in the world. We're already seeing that if we join CPTPP, just structurally, that means we're talking to those countries more and more opportunities will arise. We still actually have to renegotiate our bilateral agreement with South Korea. We rolled it over temporarily, but there are provisions in there that means that it stops being useful for UK exporters within a certain amount of time unless unless we renegotiate. So, 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 so there's opportunities to deepen that tie. But yes, it's, you know, it's, we'll be fine. I'm pretty confident the UK will be okay, but obviously certain decisions will, will result in us being wealthier than others. I share much of the things uh, Sam said, but my guess is, you know, in 10 years' time, so for certain items, selective items like a semiconductor, batteries for electric vehicles, or, or possibly pharmaceutical products or something, maybe we'll have some kind of decoupling. Okay, or supply chain uh, division between U.S. and other other countries and China, something like that. But in my uh, thinking, the trade pattern will be dramatically changed. In other words, China will be a major importing country of the many, many items they need, especially they are importing a lot of things from Southeast Asia because their wages are so high. They cannot afford in producing things, necessary items to their own people. They have to find something from outside. In other words, China slowly becoming world market rather than world factory. There's one assumption I want to make. Unless China succeed in their policies under the Xi Jinping, I mean, if their policy fails domestically, then maybe things are different. But if they continue to grow, then they have to import our source from outside. And, and we should think about that opportunity. Not within the China we produce, but from outside we produce and export to China because China will be a huge market in the future. It's fascinating. We're ending on an optimistic note, almost a a, <laughs> a promise of of Chinese potential recoupling, and that's I think a great a great note to end on. And unfortunately, this is all we have time for today. I thought this was a fascinating conversation on British and South Korean perspectives on the global trade environment and the role for middle powers. If anything, let's hope that uh, our podcast conversation is going to be a jolt to those that have to renegotiate or re update or update the uh, the UK-Korea bilateral agreement. But uh, with that, Professor Teho Bark, Sam Lowe, thank you very much for your time and for sharing your insights with me. If you are interested in the other expert conversations that are part of the AIG Global Trade Series 2022, please go to our website www.aig.co.uk slash gts. AIG Global Trade Series 2022 is an international partnership between AIG, the Aspen Institute Germany, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown University Law Center, the International Chamber of Commerce UK and France, the Italian Institute for International Political Studies, the Jacques Delors Institute France, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, and the St. Gallen Endowment for Prosperity Through Trade. To access articles and opinion pieces from partners in the Global Trade Series, and to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search 
AIG Global Trade Series 2022 or follow the AIG Global Trade Series wherever you get your podcasts.